0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hi, guys. I'm Jamie Oliver, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, this year HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. How amazing! For the past decade, they've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and so much more. It's been 10 years, and they're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Rare Book Room. My name is Cynthia, and I help direct the events here at Strand, where books have been loved for 91 years and counting. Tonight, we are very excited to have with us Jacqueline Raposo for the launch of her book, The Me Without. Jacqueline has written over 400 stories covering every topic, including food, lifestyle, entrepreneurship, tech, art, medicine, and more. As the producer and co-host of Love Bites Radio, she studies why and how we love in all forms. And with the decades of chronic illness stemming from Lyme disease and myalgic, and I'm going to butcher that, and another disease uh, behind her, she advocates with others as the co-founder of the hashtag March with, Marching With Me campaign and a chronic illness essayist. Joining Jacqueline is writer and the creator of the Lonely Hour podcast, Julia Bainbridge, three-star chef for the restaurants Missy and Lilia, from Pete Wells of NY Times and James Beard Best Chef of N- uh, New York winner, Missy Robbins, and senior editor at Food and Wine and author of the book, High Anxiety, Cat Kinsman. Tonight's event will also feature alcohol-free cocktails by Listen Bar and themed desserts by Le Chouchou executive pastry chef Daniel Shernick. And special thanks to our ASL interpreter, Kat Dunhams. Please join me in welcoming Jacqueline, Julia, Missy, and Kat to Strand.
3: Look at all these gorgeous people who care about self-care. This is (laughs) a lovely, lovely thing. Um, Would you all indulge me for just a second? And if you feel comfortable with this, close your eyes, because we're going to breathe. And it's going to be very simple. And when I tell you to uh, breathe in through your nose, breathe in as deeply as you can, and then breathe out forcefully. We're going to do this three times. So breathe in through your nose. Hold it, out through your mouth. In through your nose. Out through your mouth. One last time, in through your nose. And push this out through your mouth. You can keep your eyes closed, or you can open them. I just, when's the last time you deliberately breathed? like that. We don't give ourselves a chance to do that. Um, We don't give ourselves a chance to take care of ourselves, to listen to our bodies, Um, or at least some of us didn't, until one person took an entire year (laughs) to figure out um, where the noise in her life was coming from and how to really (coughs) listen to herself and take things apart piece by piece to really find herself and find what was important to her and what she could discard. And this all came together in the form of an incredible book called The Me Without. So welcome to all of our panelists, to our beautiful author, and let's get started talking about a little bit of self-care and uh, how we are good at it or not, and it's okay if we're all on different paths about that. But um, let's start out. Oh, it was on the wrong page right there. So you went through a whole process of getting rid of things, of maybe taking on new behaviors, but mostly getting rid of uh, maybe some cluttery things in your life. Social media was a big one that you decided to cut out for a while. Can we talk about the benefit or risks of doing that, especially when you're a person who's a writer, uh, somebody who who has to live in the public eye, or a chef who uh, needs people to come into the restaurant, how do you give that up? What does that do to your perception of yourself? Anyone else want to start? That's you. (laughs)
4: Um, I think so many of us in creative, not necessarily creative fields, but I definitely felt like I had to be a brand on social media as both a writer and a radio host, and I sort of started feeling lost to this two-dimensional world. And it wasn't as fun as the conversations that I could have been having, as the stories I could have been writing. And I really thought that, oh, my work is gonna suffer if I'm not branding myself, if I'm not pushing myself. And after 40 days of social media, cleansing or whatever you want to call it. I really found out that's not true. I really think that we build these systems that we create. We build these cultures that we create. And I think a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this. But I don't think we have to be on social media if we don't want to be. If you found out this about this event on social media, I've been pushing it a lot on social media the past couple of weeks. Um, so I obviously still do use social media. But uh, One of the women that I interview in the book, Amber Case, said as long as uh, media, social media, is a tool that we are using, that it is not using us, then that's sort of like a healthy relationship in that way. Uh, That is sort of how I try to keep myself in check for that. But I think social media is still one of my biggest problems with self-care, with self-identity. And I think a big part of that was breaking from the idea that I had to be on it. I have a choice of how I work online and who I am and how I present myself and I still have to check in with that and that's part of my self-care routine but it's a really it was a really really hard one to break and it's something that I still have to spend a lot of time being very aware of otherwise I can easily fall back into endless scrolling without noticing.
5: Can I make a case for underscoring not using it?
4: Yeah,
5: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to read something. Can I read something? Please. Okay. Absolutely. So there's this concept of psychological asymmetry. It's something that British philosopher Alain de Botton came up with, and I'm going to read what he wrote about it. It's not too long. Just bear me with me for a sec. He said, "One of the most basic facts about the human condition is that we know ourselves from the inside, but we know others only from what they choose or are able to tell us. Right? Which is a far more limited and edited set of data. We're continuously and intimately exposed to our own worries." hopes, desires, and memories, many of which feels overwhelmingly intense, strange, vulnerable, or sad, yet when it comes to other people, we're tightly restricted to knowing them through their public pronouncements, right? So the hints and clues we're left to play with are hugely imperfect guides to the reality of another person's existence, and the result of what we term this psychological asymmetry is what we almost always think of ourselves as far more peculiar, shameful, and alarming than other people we run into. So the idea that, like, we're not really so odd. We just know a lot more about who we are, right? And I bring it up because like those public pronouncements that he mentioned, man, are they like, are there exponentially more of those being made now that we're performing out our lives on social media? So, um, you know, the natural psychological asymmetry uh, that we all experience becomes even more worked for the Instagram user. So, um, Like, even if we know that most people's lives involve anxiety and distress, just like ours, despite those things not being reflected on their feeds, it's so easy to believe otherwise, right? Um, All of that is a roundabout way of saying unfollow. Unfollow, unfollow. (laughs) You know, that's getting to the care part of your question. Like I've unfollowed people um, that I like in real life because of the way that things come across on their social media channels. They make me feel like a failure by comparison. And like, do I need to work on not comparing myself to other people? Yes, but that will take some doing. So in the meantime, I can control this. Um, so the minute that like, what you're getting from following a certain person changes from enjoyment or enrichment to some form of feeling bad, cut it out.
3: I love the mute button. It's yeah, such mute. a beautiful gift you can give yourself. It's <laughs> just muting annoying things. They don't have to know. It's less violent than... I don't know what happened there. Um, it's less violent than, than uh, blocking. Um, just muting somebody, and they'll never know. They could be talking at you for the rest of time, and they don't know that you're not listening anymore. It's a beautiful it's more point.
5: gentle than an unfollow, I guess. Yeah, yeah, mute,
6: mute. Yeah. I think you just have to decide what you want your relationship to social media to be, starting with your own feed. And I think for me, I um, didn't kinda obviously grow up in social media and in my last restaurant job, social media was just getting really popular and I didn't really understand it. And when I went to open Lilia, my business partner, who's 10 years younger than me, came to me and said, you know, you better up your profile a little bit. And I was like, huh? I was like, I don't really want to. And it's taken me a solid four years to really kind of get into it. But I kind of gotten into it on my own terms and I, I don't post a lot about personal stuff. And I use it as a tool to kind of promote the restaurant and get people mostly excited about either what we're doing or um, I think the most success I've I've had with social media is is when I've traveled um, and posting things about where I've been and I've gotten the most feedback from that of like, is that gonna go on your menu? Are you, tell us where to go and roam. Um, so I think what I've learned about it is if you use it in a way that you're comfortable with and that excites you, you it, it is actually a helpful tool and it, and it creates a really nice community around you.
3: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a very generous way to use it where you're including people, where you're um, saying to people like, hey, the thing I want to share with you, as opposed to like, well, look what I'm doing here in the Caribbean, or you know, whatever it happens to be. You're inviting them in on that thing, and I think, especially if you can convey it with a sense of how lucky you are to be experiencing this, it's a really generous thing. Um, Missy, I want to stick with you for a second here because we were going we were talking about defining moments when you knew that you. Had to make a change of some sort. I think each of us has had a moment where we realized, like, this isn't working anymore. Brain isn't working so well. Relationships, body, whatever it happens to be, and there needs to be a change
6: made. You made a big change. Which which one would you like to talk about, Kat? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, there are many. Yes, um, but you were talking switching my res- job. Yeah, switching
3: restaurants and walking into the void, like you did.
6: Yeah, I. Um, I think for me, I, I had been I had been in this career um, as a chef for 20 years, and I was 42 years old, I think, and I just I was in a position where I had an amazing job and an amazing salary and all the press in the world and accolades and a great team. And I wasn't happy. And I think it took me a really long time to sort of accept that and to recognize it. And I was in a position where I decided that I could I could afford to take a year off and um, which which wasn't necessarily the smartest financial decision, but from a mental perspective it was amazing. But I, I wasn't for me the defining moment just I wasn't I was becoming sort of this person that I didn't like. I was I wasn't happy, I was not physically fit, I was forty pounds overweight, and I just knew that if I went from one job to another job that it wasn't gonna kind of solve any of the issues. So I made a very conscious decision to not work for a year. And I, and I sort of said, and I thought I'd last three months um, because I was a workaholic for many, many years and I, I just thought I'd kind of take the summer off and enjoy it and go back to work. And then I realized it was really fun to be unemployed and I was actually very, very good at it, and I had found another skill and I took that time to to really figure out what I wanted to do and who I wanted to do it with and um, and the result of that is is my first restaurant, Lilia, which just turned three years old and Lilia and I say this all the time to people, Lilia would not be Lilia if I hadn't taken the time off because my mentality changed, how I wanted to run a restaurant changed, how I wanted to interact with my staff changed, how um, I cooked really changed quite a bit over that time and, and it became um, a much, much different kind of Italian cuisine than I had been cooking before. Um, and so I think a lot of good came out of that. and. Um, I I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't taken that time.
3: Yeah, and uh, this keeps going on. Um, I've been a fan of hers this
6: whole time at all of the
3: restaurants. First fan,
6: I think she's my first fan (laughs)
3: ever. (laughs) Uh, Her uh, restaurant was a couple floors below my office, so I had the pleasure of getting to have her food on a regular basis, and I loved it with every cell in my body then. And then to watch this evolution, I I think the the care that you have given yourself shows up. food in a really meaningful way. So. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, Julia, yeah, you you've have uh, uprooted yourself. <laughs> 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 think so, yeah. Talk about some of these bold decisions that you have made to care for yourself. Yeah,
5: I mean, a big one is truly coming to the determination that alcohol does not serve me. Um, at least not right now. So I've, I've removed alcohol from my life for periods of time before, usually after over-drinking led me to scary places. So not drinking was a reaction to, uh, like, Shock or shame, uh, and this time it's really different. And it's like it's tied up with another change I made, which is to come back to New York. So um, after ten years here, I had moved to Atlanta for a job, and the job was great. And um, I sometimes regret leaving it. Now that <laughs> you know, uh, so many in media are losing work, and the industry has become more unstable than ever. But Atlanta wasn't my town. I met some wonderful people there, but I had built myself like a whole world in New York, and. Um, something about being in my mid-30s now. I, I'm more aware of time, and I don't want to spend any more of it away from my people or from the place that gives me a sense of mooring. and. Um, I think like drinking's tied up with that because the stakes are higher now. Like, I want to show my friends, uh, some of whom are in the front row there, how much I value them. And I want to I wanna figure out what my career looks like if I determine that full-time media you know, work isn't sustainable. And I'll only succeed at those things if my heart and mind are clear. <clears throat> so alcohol doesn't help me in that endeavor. Uh, yeah, so I really like, don't want to drink.
3: And yeah. we get the benefit of these beautiful non-alcoholic cocktails. Yeah, thanks cocktails. to places
5: like Lesson Bar yeah. <laughs> that are serving me and us, yeah.
3: And Jacqueline, you, uh, you know, people who will all read and love your book are going to know about some of your reasoning behind taking care of yourself and why you had to put that at the center of of your world. Um, can you talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think most of my life, every time I've had to make a change, it was because of my health. I've grown up with health issues and they've sort of morphed and changed as I've gone into adulthood. And so most major changes I've made, whether it's been leaving a job, shifting a career, changing a home, have been because I've sort of, like the bottom has dropped out. I'm also an overworker. And that usually comes like overworking, overworking before the bottom drops out and then I have to make a change. Uh, But the book sort of, I had thought that I had, caught myself from the bottom dropping out. I'd quit a a cooking job, actually, the only cooking job I've ever had. I was a private cook on top of food writing, because, again, workaholic, um, and food writing does not always pay bills, so I was doing sort of both. And so I'd quit that job, like, two years before the story of the book starts, and thinking that, like, okay, the bottom won't drop out. I'll be okay. Um, But then I found myself, like, still sick, and I was working to fix my health and it wasn't getting better even though I was changing my lifestyle again and again and my finances weren't getting better because now I'd quit the good money job Um, and I had this podcast about dating (laughs) where my co-host Ben and I were going out and dating a lot and interviewing people about love and what like worked me, I like a Julia. I date, and a Kat. Lot, yes. I date a lot. <laughs> um, Missy was busy. She had her, her restaurant, um, And so we were just asking uh, people about love and what was working and not working. And I was going out on a lot of dates and it wasn't happening. And so I think, so this change just actually came from it not being good enough. I was like happy-ish, but like I couldn't, keep on working to fix it. And um, later I interviewed Julia for the book and she said something that just sort of really stuck. It was like, sometimes you just get over yourself. And that's sort of just where I started. Like I was just frustrated, social media that started it, but I was just sort of frustrated with both not with being sick, single, and broke and nothing moving forward. The bottom didn't drop out, and nothing was going forward enough. And I was like, well, if I can't keep on adding stuff, then I'm gonna start taking away stuff and just see what happens. But I was just not, the status quo wasn't enough. Something had to change, and so I tried this weird thing. Yeah.
3: So we're all people who, I I think all four of us are people who something was going wrong, we throw work at the problem. Um, because that's how we, uh, you know, define ourselves and find a value, and maybe have been rewarded for it too much in the past. Like, oh, you've overachieved. Here's more, and you know, and here you have uh, you you have done x amount of things, and you know, in your head you calculate, oh, you know, I have this amount of worth because of all the things I have done. It's incredibly terrifying to take time to not produce to just stop and maybe sleep, maybe take a day off, maybe do something where you're not producing. I've had to go through a change over the past couple of years because I've had some physical problems. And I had to go to bed at a normal hour and not be on social media or writing or doing any of these other kinds of things. I've had to say no to doing a certain amount of, of things. Um, and I've gotten a little bit calmer about the notion that, no, I don't have to you know, write something every day. I don't have to have one palpable thing that I have created every day. And that is scary as heck to me. Or it was. I'm getting a little bit better about it now. How do you get to that point where you realize like it is okay to rest and opt out and don't go to that party and maybe take that nap? How do you give yourself permission to do that?
6: I I think it's the most important thing in the world is what, what I learned is just to have balance and it's such an overused... Topic these days and having balance, having balance, having balance. But for me, it was it was one of the things I learned when I wasn't working, and I was at a point when I wasn't working that I wasn't even sure if I wanted to be in the restaurant business, which is really sad because I had it's all I had done, and I I just was so burnt out on it, and I realized that if I was going to go back into the business, that it, it had it had to be on my own terms, and part of those own terms were creating balance, and that didn't mean not working hard and not producing, it just meant doing it in a different way, but also really al- allowing myself and and trying to promote that in my teams, also the, the space to do other things, whether that's work out every morning, whether that's go get a cup of coffee in the morning and sit with the paper, what, whatever it means to, to you as an individual. For me, it meant non-negotiable Pilates sessions and working out and, being okay going to lunch with a friend because I'm at the restaurant most of the time at dinner and recognizing that I didn't need to be in the kitchen from 10 a.m. until midnight every day. And I, and I think it's actually made me much more productive um, to, to not be there as much, but to always sort of have it on my mind, but be able to also just delegate to other people who want to feel empowered. My team doesn't want me standing in the kitchen all day. <laughs> they they love me but they definitely don't need me standing over them all day so i think i think empowering other people that work around you and surrounding yourself with other people allows you to be productive in just different ways julia <laughs> how do you slow down
5: uh i mean i I've, I've never really considered workaholism to be a virtue um that maybe Due to my parents, who were, I guess some would say absent, but some would say like didn't put pressure on me to d- go to like, you know, practice before class and then write my screenplay between homework and bed and all the things that younger millennials I think deal with the pressure from their parents who are so concerned about their economic prospects. But um, but I'm yeah I'm kind of in that period right now where I've slowed down a little bit and I don't think I can do this forever. But I'm like uh, I'm I'm a little nervous about the lack of work I'm producing right now. I'm working on some longer lead projects and, um, but I don't know, I'm, I'm really investing right now in me. I've just moved back to New York in November. Um, I'm trying to do it the right way, uh, reconnect with my people, um, and sort of make decisions slowly. And I'm really, I'm investing in, um, I'm sort of like muscling up with some tools to help me enjoy my life more and better navigate its challenges. Um, and that means, like, twice a week I'm going to Midtown from Brooklyn, which takes an hour each way, which is not something I can do when I have a demanding full time job, to go to therapy and also take coursework in something called dialectical behavior therapy, which teaches you, like, distress tolerance and interpersonal effectiveness. And, like, I literally have a workbook that I'm working through to <laughs> figure out how to better communicate and uh, treat myself. So I think I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I'm. I've, I've, I've made it a priority. I'm not totally comfortable with it. I'm trying to be so that I reap the best benefits from this time that I have that's pretty unusual in my life.
3: It's hard, man. It's hard. <laughs> so let's talk about how you went from, you know, being producing, producing, producing. What are, What's the language you use in your head to have a moment of like, hey, I need to slow down now. It's okay if I if I take this nap. It's okay if I'm kind to my body that's telling me it needs a rest.
4: To be brutally honest right now (laughs) since the since writing the book I am far sicker and so right now resting and self-care resting and not working isn't self-care it is survival um I am not really working right now I turned in my last food stories one right before the holidays one right after um I don't go out ever. This is the second time in probably the last year I've been in a room with more than 10 people. Um, I Like you asked that question, I started gripping my cup. Uh, I, My self-care around this is curbing my jealousy when I go on social media and see other writers and their stories coming out or a lot of my food media friends in this room and seeing them at events or seeing what they're doing and curbing my fear of... Having value as a person, if I can no longer write because my illness continues to it's gotten worse than last year, and I have uh, hope and I have a medical team and i'm I'm going to get better than I am right now, but writing a book and producing and promoting a book is physically exhausting so um, so I have hope, but my my resting is uh, my job i did an event on Thursday, and I rested Friday, Saturday, and yesterday. I was laying down all day, and I will go home tonight and lay down, and I will be lying down all day tomorrow. So my situation is very abnormal, um, but I agree when I sort of, (laughs) when I think about this idea of resting and doing less, that A, when I am in any sort of production mode, because I'm not completely out for the count with work, that I do still have to force myself to look at turning off like I was still yesterday while I was lying down writing emails and now and then doing social media stuff so I'm not like entirely not working obviously so I have to remind myself that okay after in this period you're going to take three days and not do anything that involves work meaning no computer and no phone because when you do turn off and take care of yourself then you are more productive so I entirely agree with that and it's so good to do that and I also wish that we do not have to be in pain all the time to do this for ourselves. So I know there are people in this room who live in bodies similar to mine and we're in unique situations, but I really do think that being kinder to ourselves, listening to our body, spending the time to learn how to understand what our body is saying to us, loving our bodies for the beautiful things that they do for us, giving them some more attention, and then making those choices to be nicer to them, even when they work for us, is just we'd all be healthier and happier and contributing beautiful work to the world if we did that a little bit more.
3: That well that is a <laughs> no no that was an exceptionally generous answer and And I am extra grateful that you are in this room right now. Um, And you were saying you think it's rare or odd. I think there are so many people out there who are, are living in these bodies and living in their brains that make it hard to be this heap of meat in the world. And... It's, but we don't talk about it as a society so much. We're not awesome about that. Um, dealing with physical stuff over the past year, it's you know, it's overcoming a certain amount of mortification to talk about it.
4: One of the things I love to remind myself and other people in my community is that we have no idea what the person in front of us is feeling inside. So like, yeah, I'm a person who, I don't look like a sick person. And so neither does the person, in. I have no idea if the person in front of me is is, if they're in as much pain as I'm in. And I try to, remember that. I have no idea what their body's story is. And so I just try to somehow be somewhat, I mean, I'm an interviewer, so that helps, but I try to be an open conversation for other people. That's why we've all had conversations about our health and bodies over the time I've known these people. And I just think the more yet we can talk about it. And create space to admit that we all live in bodies and living in a body is hard
3: being a person in the world is a really hard thing to do and then we all four of us um into we're in in the food world somehow whether it's a writer a a chef whatever it happens to be and for some of us food is the problem Uh, like for for me you know i'm a food writer and editor and so much of my physical stuff is tied up in a nasty gut issue that makes eating painful and hard. And that's a, you know, that's a negotiation that I've had to go through and my sort of self-care has been telling people about it. Hey, I can't actually eat that thing. Oh, I'm in a period where I can only eat like these, these sort of few things. And the more that I have shown that from myself, the kind, really people are, have been lovely and kind and, and caring about it. Um, how have you all... Sort of negotiated when food or or drink or whatever it is is bringing the loveliness and the lightness and the happiness and the community and all that good stuff to it versus when it's not doing those things.
6: I mean, I, I think for me the food issue. I, I'm very lucky not to have gut things and stuff, but the food issue is definitely an eating issue, which is ironic when you're a chef. And I definitely have a tendency to have weight issues, and it's something that I have to deal with every single day when I wake up. And I went on Weight Watchers to lose 40 pounds when I wasn't working, and it was really easy to do it when I wasn't working, and it really changed the way I cook and the way I think about food, and that's been translated into both of the restaurants in terms of how much fat I cook with and I still cook with fat, don't worry, but I but I but and I obviously own two pasta restaurants, so that's hasn't gone away. But I personally wake up every day and I think about how to attack the day from an eating perspective to maintain my weight. And that's really challenging. And I it took me so many years to recognize that I was just like an overeater. Um I never thought I never I never saw myself becoming big and I Stepped on the scale one day and I was almost 200 pounds, and I was like, "How did I get? How did I get to this?" And so I think um, I spend a lot of time really consciously thinking about it, and I know also that when I eat healthier, I feel much better, and when I don't eat healthy, I feel terrible. So it's just for me a constant reminder, and I'm never going to eat, give up eating the foods I love. I've just really spent the last several years training myself of, of how to eat those foods in moderation and how to make them sort of celebratory things instead of like going to Joe's Pizza every day and getting a slice or um, eating a bite of pasta instead of three bowls of pasta. And I have to taste a lot of food. Most of my job at this point is, is tasting and making sure my team's doing what they need to do. And I've just learned how to do it in a different way. Um, and when I feel myself kind of going in a not great direction, I just do like a hard stop and reset and kind of, I don't do cleanses and things, but I definitely just start eating really, really healthy for a few weeks and kind of get back on track.
5: I feel really lucky. There's never been a better time to be a non-drinker. Like, Lorelai, thanks for bringing these drinks. Um, I mean, I think like so the popularity of Dry January. Like, you've got so many people being more mindful about their drinking, whether or not they've struggled with substance abuse. And the more that I talk about not drinking, the more. curiosity I get from people, other people who have like negotiated their relationships with alcohol, people who are really into kombucha and tea and all these other delicious things we have to drink. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just feel like they're, we're all kind of celebrating those things right now. Um, it's fun. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I
4: started off of both like gluten and dairy when I was a kid. So it's been like 20 plus years because of my health issues. And that's actually why I went into food writing. Because when I was younger, I was like, I either have to learn more about food or I'm going to hate food. And so now you can get obviously gluten, dairy free everything. Um, So with restaurants, it obviously makes it hard. Now I can eat less, but just because of where my health is. So it makes conversations hard. And I've got speeches when I go to restaurants where I don't Know people, and I get very nervous still with talking to waiters. I have a whole joke, like I've got this whole layers, like I make it funny and really like you know nice, but also serious, and talk about vomiting and that kind of stuff. Just like they know that I'm serious, but I'm also trying to be nice about it. But like I am also very lucky that I work with chefs, and they are awesome because they care about food. They love food even more than I do. And I love food. I love gluten, even though I can't eat it. I would eat the crap out of gluten. I've got like, my apocalypse meal is down. It is like beer and cheese pizza. Nothing on it, like mozzarella cheese pizza and a lot of beer, and I'm gonna eat so much of it as like the asteroid's coming. I cannot, I can wait. I was gonna say I cannot wait, but like obviously I can wait. Obviously, I can wait for the asteroid. Um, but like that's what I would have. And it's, but like chefs love food. And so some of the best, most beautiful conversations or moments that have struck me off guard are when I'm in a restaurant finishing an interview and I'm offered something to eat. And I was like, no, I, I don't eat on interviews because I have these food issues. And a chef will say the, just the most beautiful gift of like, oh, well, let me make this for you. Like you should, of course, I want to make something for you to eat. Or once I went to a press dinner for 12 and the chef had made an entirely separate meal course for course, even getting gluten-free crackers from this place in Brooklyn and bread for me. And he didn't have to do that. And, uh, and another one had said, well, of course, like, of course I want to cook for you. Chefs, we take care of people. We feed people. Like the chefs that I get to work with, they cook because they want to feed people. They love food and they love to feed people. So yeah, it makes my job hard, obviously, but I don't review food. And I talk to people, I talk to people who make food and that's a pretty awesome, awesome job to get to have.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the negotiation I've had to uh, make. You know, I'm, for the most part, not writing about the food. I'm writing about uh, the people. And I switched jobs recently, and somebody said, what are you the senior editor of? And I was like, feelings. (laughs) (laughs) And those, to me, are the more interesting things. I mean, for me, the the social negotiation of food has been a little bit difficult. Um, I mean, my, my husband's here in the audience, and he can say, like, we stopped going to restaurants for about a year and I, cause I didn't want to be the girl at the table who was saying, well, you know, here's the thing. Um, but once I started actually talking about it, people were so incredibly kind. Mm-hmm. The chefs were kind. My friends, uh, were kind. They realized I, and I make the jokes too, cause I always say like, well, I'm not going to die. It's not anaphylactic. I'm just going to probably barf and feel gross later. Or, or you, you know. won't kill me. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing is you, you won't kill, kill me. me. Nobody will kill me. Yeah. yeah I'm just going to feel like crap later. And then they're like, I don't want you to feel like crap with my food. I want to feed you. I want to make you happy. So, I mean, I I am very lucky that I have been in a in a privileged position where I've been able to be really open talking about all of this kind of stuff and not everybody has that privilege and luxury. So, I figure I'm really grateful to be up here with three other people who do that. Let's talk about what self-care looks like for each one of this. I'm fascinated by it because Culturally, there's this notion that people have been talking about self-care, and so much of it is this bizarre marketed version of it, where you assume it's mani-pedis and spa visits and stuff, which it can be, and that's a great thing. But I'm really coming to realize it means a whole lot of different things to different people. What does it look like for each of you? Let's say the the 10-minute self-care version, and then the more larger holistic version
6: of it. Oh, you want me to start? We've been having a good yeah. <laughs> yeah. You like it that way? Okay, yeah. great. Um, I mean for me again it just goes back to balance and and I know it's I, it's it's about incorporating working out it's a lot about sleep for me and and making sure that I get enough of it and um listening to my body I think you talked about that and and knowing like when I'm really tired to just like take a moment and I don't have to keep pushing myself and the restaurant's not gonna close because I leave three hours early one night. And um, I think just like recognizing where where you are in life and... Um, But for me it's about eating well and and working out and sleeping and like also having a a social life and surrounding myself with people outside of work and outside of the restaurant business and having a little bit of um, diversity there as well has has become pretty important to me also. Julia
5: I'm gonna start with like a sort of silly example, which is like Bringing these papers. And you know, it's like I knew I would be nervous talking in front of a group of people tonight. And when I get nervous, I tend to become unfocused. So having an outline to reference here, like even if it looks kind of silly, makes me feel more secure. Um, And the reason that falls under self care is that if I were given this opportunity to share this space with you all, and I went home feeling like I got lost and didn't contribute anything of value to ticket buying attendees of this event, I'd probably sleep poorly, because I'd be beating myself up, and I'd spiral into a bit of depression that would last a couple days, and it would affect my other work, and so I bring notes. Uh, So (laughs) that's one thing. Uh, And that falls in line with what self-care means to me at this point of my life. Like, Of course, there's the more immediate self-soothing kind of self-care, like baths and candles, and I'm super into those. But right now self-care is work. Um, like, I'm playing a longer game uh, and I've prioritized the things I mentioned earlier, like therapy and those classes and, um, yeah, it's kind of digging in. I guess, like, if I had to really boil things down, the goal of that work um, is, oh God, just like, it sounds so sort of overly romantic, but, I mean, to lead my life with love instead of fear and to, uh, and the way to do that is to bolster my self-worth and so I'm, that's what I'm doing.
3: <laughs> and yay notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
4: Jacqueline. Um, my 10 minute self care is just giving myself time to think. Um, I think it goes with the whole like we're all so busy and the world is very distracting. So for me the 10 minutes would be like the breathing and thinking like what do I, how do I feel right now? What do I want right now? What is coming up right now? Am I making the best Choices: Do I want to be doing what I'm about to do? Or do I think I have to be doing what I'm going to do? What can I take off of my schedule? It's just sort of like the check-in because I, I don't, um, if I don't, a time can go by and I'm making not great decisions. So I think that's my constant check. My, my constant self-care is just making sure I am in control, not control, that's not a great word, but um, I'm aware of my thoughts and my feelings and my choices versus my, um, how would you put it? Just like the you know, living without awareness of what I'm doing. And then everything else, it really is uh, the, the, the work that I did, it was a really hard year, but it really connected me to my values and my priorities in life. And so even though like I'm technically limited right now physically, and that is a job, and that is very hard, and that can emotionally be very hard, I know my priorities and my values and what makes me happy, and a lot makes me happy. Um, and so self-care is reminding myself in those 10 minutes or sometimes very longer than 10 minutes to focus on those. And to, that means focusing on the books that make me happy, the people that make me happy. I've got, I don't get to see many people. And so when I do, I make sure that I'm present with them. And I prioritize the people that this body does well with. And um, they take care of me and I try to take care of them and nature and my, you know, dogs and birds and, but the things that fortify me and make me happy and that feed me. And so those things are my self-care. Um, and so I can have a very whole and, I mean, happy isn't the goal, but like, you know, just a very content human existence uh, because I'm living by what right now at least are my, my values, my priorities, uh, the things that are sustaining me, I guess, yeah.
3: Well, a lot of my s- self-care these days has been giving myself the time to read, to turn my, f- to, well, to put my phone into airplane mode. I read a lot of books on, on my phone, which is probably not the best way to do it, but here's where we are. I forgive myself for that. I put it in airline mode, and I read books. And I have to say that uh, reading, reading your book was such a tremendous gift of calm, like I worried for you during parts of it it got dark it it did, but it was it's such a it's such a gift of of a book and a a story of a really hard journey to um, becoming a person who is who is kinder and more accepting of yourself and your, and your limitations and things. So self-care is, is reading and I think self-care for a lot of you over the next couple of days should be to read this book that um, she gave the, the world as a gift and which brought all these people into the world. Um, do Thank we, you so much for joining me. Yeah, do we have time for any questions or do we want to th- take a couple questions? Okay. Um, so I think somebody have a microphone. We our mic. That's our oh, shoot. Okay. If
2: anyone has a question, can put a hand up.
3: Oh, ah. I see a hand in the back. Hi, Deborah. <laughs> I'm wondering, Kat, I think in our industry,
5: there are a lot of people who come to you who are struggling. But when you see people who are struggling, especially people who are loved ones in your life who don't quite know how to ask, but you don't, you don't want to like push ideas onto them, how have you addressed that, people in your life you love and who kind of need some
3: self-care um, yeah. and are just starting that? Journey? Uh, Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, what she's sort of referring to is I have a sort of side project where Mm -hmm. I talk to chefs about mental health and taking care of themselves, and chefs are notoriously uh, masochistic. So it's really hard sometimes uh, for, for that to happen. I, there's a couple different degrees of it. If somebody, if I'm really worried about somebody, I just have the conversation and say, I'm worried you're hurting yourself, that you're going to hurt yourself. Um, you know, or do you need to tell me something or, you know, what, you know, what can I do for you? And just is the alternative to that is not a good one. So, you can have a really blunt conversation. I got trained as a crisis counselor, um, so I could ask that question in the proper way. Um, Otherwise, I will ask people to breathe with me, I will send them uh, a few gifts that I, I send out to people that sort of you breathe along with that and it's a really important thing to do to be able to clear your head. I don't know how you all felt at the beginning when you had that, that little breath, but it's a, you know, it's a really good thing um, to be able to do it. I, just, I talk really openly about going to therapy, about times when I'm in a really bad personal spiral to normalize it so people know that they're not broken. If, if they're dealing with those things. But um, I have a dear friend, and I'll hand this over to you guys in a second, so I, have, I have a dear friend um, who checks in on me when I have not been on social media much or have not been responding to his texts, and we call it being down at the bottom of the well. And we're just like, oh, just shining a flashlight down the well, no need to respond. If you can't or don't want to or whatever right now, just know I'm up here, um, I can shine a flashlight down. Um, but I'm here with my hand if you ever want to crawl out. And we do that for each other on a regular basis. So those check-in texts are huge. Just ask people. You can say to somebody, hey, you know, um, no need to respond if you can't right now. That's a good gift to be able to give to somebody. But just, I'm thinking about you. I'm here if you need me. I care about you. And if you need to talk, I'm here to hear the, the, what's the real answer. You don't have to hide anything from me. How about you guys?
4: Um, I love the, the Mr. Rogers, he gave a speech to save PBS and he said that just um, that teaching children specifically that feelings are mentionable and manageable. I think that's sort of just opening that conversation. I I just try to help people talk about their feelings and sort of just figure out with different gentle, non-imposing ways to be like, what, how are you feeling around something? And I think that's sort of, just that we can talk about feelings without them being scary is a way. Um, just to sort of uh, lessen the, the scariness of what's happening inside of our, our heads and hearts. And then I agree that the buddy system is incredible. I have two you know, I have two people that like we, we have a code that all we have to do is text it to each other and that's a like call me now. And then I have a friend that like when we are having certain thoughts we tell each other just so that we have a witness for those thoughts um, and I think just finding someone in your life to, to have that with no matter, you know, is, is just a really great thing to try to sort of set up no matter what the, the scenario is. I think uh, relationships and community and just, yeah, talking about feelings are mentionable and manageable. I think I'm quoting that correctly, but I if not, I like those words together. Yeah, that uh, just talking isn't. It doesn't have to be as scary as inside in our heads we might think it is.
6: I think, I mean, for me, I deal with this on a, a daily basis with, with my staff, and understanding kind of when, when they need attention, and I think we take a lot of time to get to know the people that work with us, and i I, I fortunate that I get to spend a lot of time, especially in the kitchen, but really understanding the different personalities, and often, especially people in the kitchen, are not gonna tell you their feelings and they're very good at hiding behind a knife and a pan. And um, so I think understanding when, when you really need to check in with people and, and give them attention as, as a boss and a leader. I would just echo all of that. Yeah. Talking about
5: feeling. I mean, I built a whole project around talking about loneliness. So like, I mean, but Ellie, I'm someone who's pretty unashamed to talk about her feelings. So I feel like that show could have been the, the anger hour or the desire hour or the whatever. It just happened to me. I happened to study loneliness, but, um, yeah, it's important to talk openly about it and that helps kind of neutralize the taboo around,
3: around it. Yeah, if you haven't listened to her podcast, it's called The Lonely Hour. And it's so, oh, God. Kat was well, a guest on well, season one. Thank well, you coming so, when it was small. Well, thank you. Like, it's such good voices to have in your head, um, is is the lovely Julia and her guests and the conversations that flow out of that. It's it's just, it's a truly beautiful uh, thing and it, a great act of self-care, too. It's a show about loneliness, but it's not a bummer, I promise. <laughs> no, it's warm and lovely. Um, do we have any other questions? I think some of us are, "Oh, there's one right over there." Oh wait, a uh, microphone is coming to you. <laughs> <Sorry>. Well done.:
1: <laughs> it, may, it may sound a little strange, but I find myself, if I walk into a restaurant, I walk in and I'm thinking, what am I looking for?" And I find myself looking to find something that's going to go wrong. Yeah. It, for me, cooking is an art. It's not just cooking and you' eating and you forget about it. So I gave it up a, a long time ago. <laughs> but I find myself, and it annoys my son and my, t- <laughs> my daughter, that I'll walk into a restaurant and instead of saying I'm going to have a good meal, I'm looking for something to criticize. To, I'm, I'm a critic. What causes that?
5: Only in restaurants,
1: or do you and approach you know, other things? No. This the way? funny thing is, it transitioned into my personal life. I find myself that I'll meet someone, and instead of enjoying the person, nice and everything, I'm looking for something to go bad so I can break it off. <laughs> yeah.
3: Happiness is a is an active choice. It's not the default. Like you have to decide. Like you know what? I'm open to this. It's work sometimes being happy if it's not a passive thing i mean sometimes things are enjoyable and they're lovely and they wash over you but you did the work to go to the restaurant to pick the restaurant to go to the restaurant to decide who you were going to go with the, all of these things so some of that is on you i think and it's 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 letting that open i think there is a fear of especially in restaurants where people think like I'm not gonna get my money's worth. I'm gonna do this wrong. I'm gonna, you know, something. Something is gonna happen, and and I know there are a lot of people who look for something wrong because they think that they somehow cri- that they were more aware. They criticized it more. Something sometimes happiness. These things can be simple, and it's scary to let yourself like things because what if it doesn't happen the next time? Um, if you can be present in that moment and just appreciate each of the things that are happening, even if they're not perfect, it begets <laughs> happiness, I, I think. Like, the more, it's it's sort of like a muscle that you, you have to exercise, and you'll be able to lift more happiness the more you are determined to let that happen, I think.
4: Well, By I, the
1: way, Jackie, I know you don't remember me, but I, I know, yeah, you do.
4: <laughs> well, I think I, I think our if you choose to see it, a lot of media is mean. Television can be mean. Newspapers yeah. can be mean. Twitter is very mean. And so if that's, there's there's this, um, another person I quote in the book, it's Donald Oheb was a psych, neuropsychiatrist. neuropsychiatrist uh, and he, he penned the phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together. Our brains are, you know, firing and wiring and reproducing and you know, they're, they're setting up patterns. And so if we are looking at negative things over and over, we are creating negative patterns for ourselves versus if we are looking at happy things and surrounding ourselves with happy things and creating happy patterns for ourselves. So I don't know what kind of, you know, media and things you have around in your life, but I think a lot of us, we are, we have Yelp and we have Twitter and we have all these things that make all of us critics all the time. And so if we are filling our lives with that, that might lead us to be more critical when we walk into a place. Anybody can be a food critic right now. Um, So I think, yeah, you have to actively choose to not be that. Happiness and, and gentleness and kindness, you have to choose to be present with an experience and look at like, hey, I get to be in this amazing restaurant or this film or this beautiful bookstore and just be with other humans who are also in this weird universe that we are all spinning around in for some weird reason, you know? Like, I think, like, you have to... Choose what you are taking in in these weird brains that we have in our heads um, and just be aware that what, all the stuff that we are seeing our brains are absorbing without us realizing
6: it half the time.
3: As a chef. As a chef you want
6: <laughs> I guarantee you my restaurants will make you happy. Yeah. sir. <laughs> here's, the, here's the deal. When I was a very young cook and I started going out to eat and I I had many similar feelings and it was a choice and I chose a long time ago that unless it's like on the list and a bucket list place where I've been waiting to go for years, I really try and just go out to dinner and surround myself with people I like and enjoy the experience and not kind of worry about if it's the best food I've ever had or if it's the best drink I ever had or if the service is the best. Because if I did that for the last 25 years, I would be really miserable. Um, so I, I think it's just about, about allowing yourself, like Jacqueline said, to, to just enjoy it and enjoy the experience and not get so caught up in the minutia of of what it is. Well, and if you can't, don't go to restaurants for a little while. I mean, you edited out some
5: stuff. Just edit it out for a minute, and then slowly add it back and see how it feels.
3: So I think in the spirit of self-care, go to her restaurants.
2: Listen <laughs> Except to her,
3: Restaurant. Listen to her podcast. Read her book, and do something really lovely for yourself tonight in addition to coming here. I mean, thank you for being here. Thank you for writing this book that brought us together. Thank you for the the, the cocktails and the food and all of this good stuff. Go forth and be happy.
0: Wow. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com, Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening.